Hello everyone and welcome to the Uninformed Handball Hour. We're a third of the way through the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. It's Chris O'Reilly here, joined by Alex Kulash again. Alex, how are you? Hey Chris, I'm very, very good. I have watched an insane amount of handball. I've watched an insane amount of sport in the last only four days, but it, it really feels like uh, a lot more. Six days. Six days, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's felt like four days. You probably slept four nights. But anyway, uh, we're going to be talking uh, very shortly to someone who's watched probably even more handball than you over the last six days. That's Bjorn Patson who is a regular guest in the pod and is also working as a media manager for the handball tournament at Tokyo. So we're going to be calling into him live from Tokyo. But first, though, I want to ask you, you mentioned there about watching all the different sport and all the handball. How are you consuming Tokyo 2020 so far? What is your sleeping pattern like? What are your tactics? I haven't fully committed to the the nocturnal way of life yet. I, I think when it comes down to the crunch time in the handball and a few of the other sports, I, I might change to that. But right now, it is just perfect breakfast viewing. I get up nice and early, seven, eight, stick it on the TV. There's usually a few handball games on already, or I might uh, dip into another sport like gymnastics or water polo. Water polo is one I've I've started to follow okay. uh, a little bit more. That's uh, I know it's very close to handball, but it's <laughs> <laughs> a bit more uh, danger of drowning. Uh, but it's been good fun, and then. <laughs> catching up on the handball in the evening with a few replays uh, but it's it's been great and i have to say it's great that it happens in july when all of denmark goes on holidays and things are a little bit more chilled out in my day job <laughs> i i think i'm along similar lines with you i haven't fully committed to tokyo time yet i feel that that's going to happen from friday onwards once the athletics also begins because uh, I think that's a that's a turning point for me. So I'm from Friday going to give up all social activity and just uh, have Tokyo 2020 and work side by side until uh, Sunday week. But also haven't fully committed to to handball. I haven't watched like every single game. I usually watch the last two handball games of each day and then catch up a little bit. But I'm trying to uh, trying to spread it out because of the. Uh, mini olympopod podcasts i'm doing as well so i need to know more than just handball <laughs> so i am i'm trying to spread it out yeah so far so good and as of recording this morning ireland got its first gold medal in rowing so the only way is up or that actually that could be the end for ireland's gold medal i don't know yeah yeah i don't think there's much further <laughs> up we can go as a as a nation but uh so far, so good. Mm. So uh, what we're going to do is talk to Bjorn about his impressions of Tokyo 2020 so far from the ground floor and uh, I'd talk about the competition as well, some of the headlines, and then we'll go into just the two of us and talk about a few of the games and some of the teams in detail. So first, it's Bjorn Bronson.
Bjorn Patson joining us live from Tokyo. How are you, Bjorn? Hi, Chris. I'm I'm fine. I have my uh, 16 hours shift as venue media manager behind me in the Yoyogi Stadium. I saw five handball matches and a half. And uh, now I'm in my apartment ready to prepare for another short night. But this is why we're here for. So what's it like watching five games in a row or six games in a row? Do you get exhausted? No, but to be honest, I have I have so many different tasks to do. So uh, this is the first Olympic Games, the so-called booking system. So all the journalists have to apply for sessions in all their sports. And I'm responsible for handball. And as we have a quite small interview area, I have also tickets for the mixed zone. So uh, there's a lot of administrative things. Then uh, I coordinate the mixed zone together with a guy from the Olympic Broadcast Service. Sometimes I'm in the venue media center, which is in another hall in Yoyogi Stadium. So I'm not sitting six matches, which means in the end about uh, 15 hours in the stands to watch handball match. But uh, more or less, I see I see uh, the crucial parts uh, as I could watch then also in the replay if I want to see. And uh, yes, it's uh, all about handball at the moment uh, for my life here in Yoyogi. But uh, uh, it's interesting to see. And uh, yeah, some interesting things happen here at Tokyo at the moment. I think that's one of the most fascinating aspects of handball at every Olympics is that it is all day, every day for the entire Olympics. And so if you're a journalist or in your case, running the media management, that it is quite literally your life. And there's very little of the, the rest of the Olympics you actually get to take in. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. The, if the Olympics are in uh, Vienna, in New South Wales, on the North Pole or in Tokyo, you don't care. You have an apartment and you have an arena and you don't see anything else. Mainly in the first 12 competition days uh, until the end of the quarterfinal. From the semifinal on, it's only two matches. Then it's a little bit time to sleep and buy some souvenirs for the way home. But uh, before it's only handball. And so what's, what's the feel like uh, from the players, from the coaches, anyone you've talked to about the tournament so far, the, how it's been set up? Uh, the arena is obviously a pretty nice place to be and it looks great. But what, what's the general feel um, in the stadium right now? So there are a lot of praises for this arena. You have to see it was the, the aquatics and swimming uh, uh, venue for the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. And uh, it was completely rebuilt. So officially it's for 12,000 uh, capacity. And uh, it's really looking nice with these nice uh, Olympic logos and everything like this. And of course, everybody said it's a shame that we have no spectators. But I guess when you, when you talk to the players and the coaches, they got used to it in the last season to play without spectators. Everybody says, okay, it would be better, but we can do it now and uh, yeah what, what you see we have now six competition days over and there was not a big big uh, injury and a lot of people had thought yeah it might be a lot of injuries because of the long season and uh, the, the partly crazy preparation of the teams which uh, had not been allowed to leave their hotels or training venues for two weeks but uh, fortunately there was no major injury so far and um, yeah what you see is uh, that still some teams are trying to find uh, the rhythm and uh, they look a little bit unprepared. Also, they had a long preparation, but I think this is always the thing with the, with the Olympic Games. You have usually your competitions in the wintertime, so for the women in December and for the men in January. And uh, then after a season with those major events and Champions League and National League, 
then comes Olympics, and then it's it's different. It's different for them, of course. That they, I, I think, the German team or all players who play in Bundesliga, they had five days of holiday until the end of Bundesliga to the start of preparation. So it might be a little bit crazy, but I think all players and coaches like to be part of these games. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of the situation, you're going to try and take the opportunity if you can. Uh, you mentioned the the German players there uh, playing mostly or almost all except for Andy Wolf in the Bundesliga and then coming in. What do you think from a German perspective of the championship so far for them? <laughs> it's interesting to see when you look, go back the last three, four, five years, they have only one one big match in the end. This was the, the crucial main round match uh, against uh, Croatia on home crowd when uh, when they qualified for the semi-final in 2019. All the other matches against top opponents, they lost. And they mostly lost by one or two goals. Here, you lose against Spain by one goal, very unluckily. And then you, after a great comeback, you lose against one goal, uh, by one goal against France. So when you see this and they, they ask themselves, okay, what is what is going wrong? So um, they're not playing constant enough. So they're, they're not when they're ahead. They cannot keep the keep the advance, and when they're down, they have a great comeback, but it's not enough to turn the match around. So always a little things are missing, and uh, yeah, but you could see really so that uh, the German team they're disappointed uh, at the moment. So still they can they can go to the quarterfinal, of course, but uh, they were again two times close. Uh, to beat a big opponent, but for example, like in the Euro 2020, they had exactly the same situation, losing by two goals against Croatia, losing by one goal against Spain, and uh, this was uh, the, the key by, for losing or missing the semi-final. What do you think, or what have you heard also from from the team or from uh, media about the reasons for this? Like in that game against France, for example, you know there are two very standout moments towards the end with Paul Drucks passing two balls into the uh, non-existent crowd right at the end but you can pin moments like that down to someone like Drucks as the playmaker but what are what are people saying the thing is how they started uh, I guess if you start against France by 2-7 and 7-14 then it's a kind of miracle against such a strong team that you come back after the break and even get ahead by 19-18 but exactly in this part I guess they lost so much power that they didn't have it anymore in the end and uh, they always make the mistakes in attack. So the, the defense is quite stable, but they lose balls in, in attack. They have turnovers. They miss shots in attack. And always in the crucial moments, when you go back to the World Championship in January in, uh, in Egypt, there was a match against Spain. They were plus three and lost it in the end because of so many missed chances. And that reappeared against Spain here and that reappeared against France here. Especially when you see that... Uh, what what mistakes they made in the end, and that France was clever enough to 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 not to cause so many mistakes. They were not much better, but they were exactly in the in the crucial period. They were better, and uh, they took the advantage of the clear lead in the beginning, and they had, seemed to have more confidence. So in the end, uh, it was deserved uh, defeat against uh, against France, and really unlucky one against Spain with some crazy things in the last minutes. I would not say what uh, some Germans said that uh, Spain tried to keep the ball wet so they could not catch it or that referees made wrong decisions against them so I would say I would say it was the same again that uh, the in the crucial periods of the match they they didn't uh, they didn't have the confidence and they made too many, uh, too many mistakes and it really feels like Germany are missing a leader um that person to take over in those crucial minutes um this, the team is very equal they play a very 
uh, spread attack, everyone scores, but especially in the attack, they're missing a leader and potentially missing a playmaker. Um, do you see anyone stepping up to be that guy for Germany? So uh, before the tournament, everybody was praising Philipp Weber as the new super playmaker for Germany. They compared him with Markus Bauer, the team captain and playmaker of the 2007 World Champions. And uh, I think the gap between Weber and top playmakers, as you see, Sargosen, uh, Karabatic, Hansen, uh, Melvin Richardson, or whoever, this is a huge gap for him. So we have this young Yuri Knorr. But, uh, of course, he makes a lot of mistakes. He doesn't have so much playing time at the moment because uh, Philipp Weber is playing more. But exactly this is the problem which Germany has since uh, 2007. They don't have a real playmaker after Markus Bauer. And uh, they didn't have one when they when they became Euro champion. It was a different situation. And, of course, you have also low potential, I would say, that they're looking for a top star on the left-back position. You have Paul Drucks there and, uh, and Julius Kühn. But compared to other teams, which have world-class on left-back and, and centre-back, there we have a problem. We have four in the end. We have four top line players in Germany. We have strong wings with Schiller and Kastening at the moment. And uh, when you talk about the leader, also the team captain Uwe Gensheimer is not a leader. When you look back on a match against Argentina, in this was his 200th anniversary match. Everybody expected uh, that he shows a brilliant gala, and he didn't play at the beginning. And then he came on court and uh, shot a penalty in the face of the or at the head of the Argentine goalkeeper. Received the red card, so his 200th international match took exactly one second. So. Gensheimer is out of form uh, as a leader and, uh, and of course you have a player like like Hendrik Pekler he's the def definitely the, the defense boss he's the team leader in, in defense but he's not the team leader in attack and you need someone uh, as I would say Juri Knorr can become one strong playmaker in the future and also very young player Sebastian Heimann he can play on left back and on center back so I guess those two will have the future and those two um, we'll get the chance. But at the moment, they, they really have a problem on this position. It's a lot of the same teams. I think we've been talking about Germany for the last couple of years, really. Um, same issues popping up. We'll see how they go for the rest of the tournament. And besides that, you've, as you mentioned, had a very good overview, uh, at least watching in some part of almost every single game of this championship. Uh, any teams or any players that are really surprising you in a positive way? In general, definitely Brazil woman, and of course, uh, after a very weak start, uh, Spain woman. Uh, so Spain and Brazil face today, and Brazil woman they took a, a very unlucky uh, draw only against Russia. We have to talk about Russia later on, uh, but uh, Sweden and uh, Brazil and Spain, those three teams in the women's competition, they are really, really strong. Of course, Norway is on top of everything, but uh, when you see this. Um, this mix in the Brazilian team between speed and uh, and power, this is really very nice to see how they play with the Spanish influence of coach Jorge Duenas. They have experienced players like Arenhard in the goal or Amorin on the left back. They have the, the top player of the European League, Paula Di Bruna. And they have so many real good players. It was great to see. And this young Swedish team, when everybody said, oh, first tournament after the end of career, of the national team career of Bella Gulden. When you see the work Thomas Axner, the coach, is doing there, it is brilliant to see this Swedish team. They, I would say this is the best Swedish team 
performance I've, I've ever seen. And it's not true. They are not only have to rely on the player like Bella Wuldin. They have such strong players. And uh, yeah, in the men's tournament, when you see the development of Egypt uh, going uh, from a strong performance on home ground in the World Championship, and uh, they are, I would say, they are close, close to the world class. And uh, depending on which team they play in the quarterfinal, they can be a candidate or aspirant for the for the semifinals. Even. And it's easy, and it's interesting to see former. You had these North uh, African teams they're playing with a three-three defense or something like this to stop the opponent, and uh, they were more reacting than acting. And uh, and Egypt, they are acting. They are they're very. Confident, they're they're playing also the Spanish style of uh, of Roberto Barondo, uh, Barondo, former coach of Vada, and you see a real development of this team with the young players, which had been uh, world champion in the in the under nineteen and third ranked and the under twenty one. So they integrated these young players, and you have experienced players like Ali Sain or uh, Ella Lama. And uh, of course, uh, you're here from from West Prem, and it's really they they spring, they play real strong handball. So we have to see in the men's competition, Egypt is definitely a contender for the semi-final. Uh, Alex has uh, been waxing lyrical over the last year or so about this Egyptian team, and uh, yeah, they're the team I think that. Uh, Really, nobody wants to face in that quarterfinal, which makes the France versus Spain game tomorrow really interesting in the other group. Uh, but you mentioned the the Russian, the Russians there, the Rock Russian Olympic Committee. Uh, they finally got a victory today against Hungary. But uh, overall, what have you made of them? So when you saw them in the first match against Brazil, they were lucky to get a point, and then they were overran by Sweden and I've never seen a weaker Russian team in any any match like like this. So and they were really they had no defense. They they were weak in attack and uh, they lacked everything. They had Viakira was completely out of the match. And uh, so what happened today in the match against Hungary? Russia have a special guest on the Tribune and he took over. Uh, I think it was the loudest person ever in the last weeks in the Yoyogi Stadium when Yevgeny Trefilov started his mission coach coaching the team. So they have one uh, head coach on the bench with Alexeyev, two assistant coaches. But in the end, it was only Trefilov. Trefilov was coaching every action in defense and attack. He was shouting like in his best times. And he, I, I talked to him, he said his heart is getting better and he's really ambitious now to return uh, to handball again. And we see today there was, if I would be the coach of Russia or a rock, as you said, I would say, okay, Trefilov, come down. But I think you cannot so easily change a, a coach during Olympic Games. But you see, and the players, all the players, except Vyakirova, except Vyakirova, after the match, came to his position on the tribune and uh, thanked him and uh, really were bowing for what he has done on the tribune. And what I heard from uh, after the match against Sweden, he was sitting in a minivan and every single player had to go one minute into the minivan and Trefilov was instructing them what they had to do and instructing the coach how he has to train. So in the end, we <laughs> don't need any assistant coach or something like this. So really, today, the match winner for Russia was on the Tribune, was Trefilov. And you see all the Russian journalists, they were not in a mixed zone taking interviews of the player and the coach. They were all crowding on Trefilov and 
you could see in his face, he loved this situation that everybody came and said, yeah, Trefilov, you, you are the father of this victory. And it will be great to see how, how the story ends. If maybe Russia in the end defend the title with a coach on the tribune, nobody knows. So uh, it was it was so funny to see today. And uh, really, he went mad at the match against Sweden. He was starting to shout. He lost his voice. And you could see in his eyes, he was totally, totally shocked on the performance of the team. It's still his team. And uh, yeah, and it was really so <laughs> one of the funniest moments I, I've seen that the man on the on the tribune is coaching a team and has not received a red card or something before, but he's only the guest of honor of his federation. Yeah, so I would say uh, now on uh, Trefilov will, will do it in the same way. But uh, of course, they have uh, only one win from three games so far. So and but Hungary also when you saw Hungary. They were very weak. They're still on zero points. France had the, is not stable as they were before in the French women's team. So they, they lack stability. And uh, after a very weak match, as I said, Spain, they're, they're also really strong. And uh, when you see the, the team spirit in the Spanish team, it's also, it's also great. So when you see how they celebrate together, this is, uh, this is great. The, the Trevlov story is fantastic. He really is the godfather of uh, Russian handball. He you know, sits in the darkness. And I loved how he gradually just got closer and closer to the court. So I think in that game against Sweden, he was sit- standing at the like second deck and shouting, uh, probably not being able to be heard. He, he was to the closest. He was to to the closest seat possible to the court and yeah maybe Russia should just move him to the bench because for a guy who's had uh, heart issues it probably it's not probably great for him to just be shouting on the top of his lungs from this stance I I don't think I don't think his position in the arena changes how loud he's going to be screaming though (laughs) no first thing that's and second thing if the players see I think see him only and then they hear him, and uh, this is uh, this is the motivation they need. I don't know if I really don't know what if I would be this poor Alexei Alexeyev, what I would do. So now because uh, I know that I'm I'm in the end sorry to say so I'm useless at the moment because the players only listen to the words from the Tribune. So I don't know what what the the Russian strategy is for the rest of the match, uh, the tournament. Yeah, fascinating to see if that actually backfires on them or whether Trefilov becomes the, the hero, as you mentioned, uh, from afar. Brilliant stuff, brilliant overview of the championship so far, Bjorn. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'll let you get to sleep. It's almost midnight Tokyo time. Up at what time? Four o'clock tomorrow? Uh, well, my alarm clock rings at, at five and my uh, my shift in the arena starts at 6.15 at the Olympic Games. Your venue uh, media center has to open three hours before the first session starts <laughs> and opens until four hours after the end of the session. So our venue media center is officially closed only from three to six in the night. And uh, yes, and uh, the good thing is the first job, we have no breakfast. So otherwise, maybe some journalists would come earlier, but most of them come exactly 15 minutes before the start of the first match because it's really useless to go. It's a nice media center because it's a basketball arena normally and a whole arena for a media center. But uh, yeah, so uh, tomorrow morning we have uh, people, depending on uh, when when this uh, here will go live, uh, you have the, the big battle of the South Americans. So with Brazil versus Argentina, like we had, what one word to say, 
the biggest crowd on the media tribune we had today in the in the clash of the Asian titans between Korea and uh, Japan. And uh, Korea never lost a match against the Asian team at Olympic Games, and it was close today. But in the end, they were they were beating Japan. And uh, yeah, it is group is interesting. When when you saw Japan beat Montenegro, now Korea beat Japan. So um, the only disappointment there is Angola. But yeah, all th- all all three games in that uh, that group on Saturday are going to be really interesting on the on the women's side. Well, enjoy your five hours, hopefully five hours of sleep, Bjorn, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, Bjorn Patson, for a whirlwind through the the first days of the handball competition. Uh, a good overview of what's going on, really um great insight especially on the russian team that's a fantastic story for for anyone who doesn't know trefilov just look him up he is the godfather of russian handball one of the meanest angriest horrible coaches old school coaches but he gets results he damn gets results and gets the respect from his players so very old school coach but it it is effective. As we start with the, the men's competition and, and pick up on some of the things we spoke about with Bjorn there, you know, we spoke a lot about Germany, so we don't have to go into too much with them, but let's stick with that group. And it's the old pros of France and Spain that are getting the job done so far. Yeah, Spain. This is exactly, you know, we, we wrote them off, but I think we are writing them off for a, a, a medal, maybe. I, I don't know. I, they were always going to do this. They've been doing this for years. They know how to win. It's really amazing because they just know how to react to anything another team throws at them. Yeah. Whether it is a different type of defense, they just react to it and they know how to counter it. When I think Germany switched to a 3 2 1 defense, Spain just tore them apart because they all face it a million times. That's a, That's very different to a team like Brazil or Argentina mm. facing a 3-2-1 defense and then they start to collapse because they don't have that experience. So that's what Spain have. They have the experience, but they lost Viran Moros. And that is a huge, huge loss for them because mm. I was looking through the squad and there really isn't anyone to fill his shoes. Um, Makeda is really the only option in that center block. Uh, he'll slot in beside... Guardiola so that you know causes issues in itself will Makeda just be used as a defensive specialist which seems like a bit of a waste but then you're taking away Alex Dushabaya's time yeah and they also have Eduardo Gabindo so they have enough right back power even without Makeda um, and they can focus on him more as a defensive specialist and maybe to go both ways uh, when he's needed yeah so uh, Spain looking good. I really thought that Brazil were going to take them, actually. They, they went into a big lead. But um, again, old pros just, they <laughs> they get the job done. Um, uh, otherwise, the other team that has really interested me has been Norway, mm. actually. And they haven't been as exciting or as explosive as we've seen them in previous competitions they lost that game to spain uh, but then came out with two fairly comfortable victories against brazil and argentina 
both still good wins. Brazil and Argentina have are very good teams. Uh, really shouldn't underestimate that. But I like what I see from Norway. And even though they haven't been too impressive, that might sound contradictory. I like what I see from them because they have learned how to play in a tournament. And Sagasin is relaxing. In previous tournaments, he he really just goes out and goes full power from minute one. Um, in the last World Championships and the Euros as well, he, in the first couple of games, he's shot on average 13, 14 times. So he, he just goes full power from the start. And then you see him petering out towards the end of the competition. He's reined that back in a little bit. He's still, yeah, he's still the leader of the team, but he doesn't, I don't think he's hit his highest gear yet. And that's on purpose. And hopefully as the tournament goes up, he will start to ramp up. He hasn't been that great. His shooting has been a little bit off, but overall the playmaking, the, the team has been playing very well. So. I'm interested to see how Norway kind of ramp up in this competition. Yeah, I think it's maybe the fact that Joran Sugard is not there, that maybe that was the wake-up call a little bit. It also could be the previous tournaments, like you said, but knowing that, okay, actually, I do need to uh, protect myself a little bit here because there will be, when it comes to the quarterfinals onwards, I will literally have to play 60 minutes in attack, definitely. And uh, that could be perfect thing for for him in Norway also Torben Bergerud has been looking pretty good in goals there was a great goalkeeper battle between him and Rodrigo Corrales in the Norway-Spain game which I thought was really impressive by both goalkeepers and that has also been another question mark for this Norwegian team uh, in recent years whether uh, Bergerud or a goalkeeper can get the job done for them so yeah it's um it's an interesting uh group that's developing there and I think like the the thing is they're probably gonna have a Scandi battle in the quarterfinal, right? Because that looks likely at the moment, depending on how things go with Germany in their next game on Friday, that they'll probably finish third in the group. And that means facing second from group B, which is Denmark and Sweden in there. And uh, Sweden, your top tip before the tournament, they've been scraping over the line each time. And again, it could be a case of early tournament form or not playing as well as they should do, but getting the wins. Yeah, it's Sweden have been really interesting. Um, I've tried to keep an eye on them in this competition because previously I, I hadn't watched that much of the Sweden games. And even in the last European Championship, their games seem to clash with a lot of teams and I missed them quite a bit until the later rounds. But Sweden are all transitions. They are a team that lives on transition play. Their first wave and second wave fast break is the best in the world, especially their second wave fast break is incredible. Their fast restart from the center, they get goals from that constantly. They're absolutely amazing that, and they have Palika in goals to give them those opportunities. He makes saves, he gives them those opportunities. But their set attack is not great. And they're really struggling with the set attack. They seem to have a very limited um, range of uh, movements. Uh, they, they have a limited kind of set piece 
range. Uh, a, a lot of it is around just uh, Jim Gottfriedson going in and taking up space, whether as a second line or kind of taking defenders away and trying to make space for uh, everyone else. But it's it's not flowing. It's not pretty, actually. It's very slow. Um, I, I think they have a bit of an issue in that. And additionally, because they play with this um, six six on the court all the time so they they try to not make uh defensive sub- substitutions that limits who plays and two guys that we um picked out at the start of the competition who've had fantastic season seasons in Felix Clare and Sandel have played very limited time because Carlsberg needs to be on the court for defense when um when Clare or Sandel come in, that it becomes unbalanced, and they actually have been doing a bit of defensive substitutions. We saw that in their game against Portugal, because their attack looked so much better with uh, Clare and Sandel. They really they broke the Portuguese defense. They really went up ahead, and they went tw- uh, up twenty nine twenty five. So that was because of their attack, but because Clare and Sandel then had to defend. And Carlsberg was off. Portugal destroyed them in in those last two minutes and almost stole the game, uh, coming down to a one goal victory for Sweden. So it's a real challenge for Glenn Solberg to figure out to really get the maximum from them. You outlined it perfectly. I mean, that's the dilemma there. I mean, they have the great transition because nobody's coming on and off, but at the same time, you know, you can't have both of those guys on, particularly Sandel, who. If I remember correctly, um, both for club and country, has always been the guy that other teams target in attack. They put their left back or their most dangerous player on him and try and get the two-minute suspensions, try and get the penalties. So, yeah, it's a really fascinating dilemma. and I, I, There's positives to get from both of them. They just need to figure out when the right time is to use them. Besides that, I mean, Denmark have been uh just flying through the tournament i don't think we have to go into too much detail until later on in the championship about them but a lot of people have been impressed by bahrain as well and this surprised me with their performances so far yeah absolutely the, this is their new small ball handball that <laughs> that people have been talking about now where bahrain have a generally fairly small team everyone kind of under six foot um, but they're very good shooters. Um, they're very skilled players um, in the one-on-one situation and kind of the under armor and standing shots. So they've kind of developed this style that seems to work for a smaller nation. And one thing I've just noticed throughout the tournament for the non-European nations, let's say the underdogs, if for both the men's and the women's side, and that has been just turnovers. Turnovers have been the absolute bane of Japan, South Korea, um, Argentina, Brazil, all, all of the non-European nations except for Egypt and Bahrain. Um, they haven't, they, they've just, they've ha- they're forced to play this super fast style to keep up with the big boys. Because the easiest goal in handball to score is that transition goal or second wave fast break. They're, they're forced to play that, but they don't know when to slow down. And that's what's happened to Brazil and Argentina actually 
in all of the games where they've been close. Argentina really had a chance against Germany. They had a chance against Norway. Brazil had a chance against Spain, but ultimately it came down to turnovers and uh, the, the more experienced team pulled away. What Bahrain do is they know how to slow it down uh, a little bit. So they still play fast, but they have some sort of semblance in the set attack where they're comfortable to slow it down when they need to. And their pace has been fairly slow in this tournament so far. And um, that's one thing that uh, Neil Johnson from ESPN mentioned in the Hambolytics podcast. Uh, Really good one to check out. They have a daily daily podcast on the stats side of handball throughout the Olympics. And uh, Neil Johnson from ESPN was on and he mentioned that in college basketball, there is this disparity of great teams and worse teams. Um, and what happens there is that the slightly worse team would actually try to slow down the game as much as possible to basically give themselves a chance uh, or, or as big a chance to win by reducing the amount of possessions. The fewer shots you have on goal, the fewer goals there'll be, and the longer the other team doesn't have the ball, the less chance they can hurt you, right? Exactly. Yeah, it comes down to that. And that's the opposite of what uh, the non-European teams Mm. in this tournament have been doing, except for uh, Bahrain. So it's been been great to see um, them play. Absolutely heartbreaking for them, though they really... Uh, a last-second miss penalty against Sweden cost them a draw. A um, really, they they could have won against Portugal. They were they were potentially the better team. Um, and then obviously against Denmark, they 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 were outclassed. But there's I, I still have a bit of hope for them. But it, it might come down to Egypt versus Bahrain, and I think Egypt. Well, have been very, very strong, as Bjorn mentioned. Previously. Well, Bahrain, Bahrain played Japan in the next game, right? And it could come down to a three-way tie between Portugal, Japan, and Bahrain, because Japan then play Portugal in the last game, and Portugal beat Bahrain by one goal. So, if all three teams beat each other, uh, which isn't impossible, you never know. Portugal, of course, the the favourites out of those three, but haven't been. Uh, well, as it shows from the one-goal win over Bahrain, aren't out of that, uh, out of that stratosphere, then uh, it could come down to some goal difference between the three of them by the end. So there's a chance for all three still to make it through. And um, yeah, a quick uh, shout out as you mentioned there, the Handballytics podcast with two former guests of ours, Julian Rux and Mark Hawkins. Have you received your invite yet, Alex? I'd be disappointed if they don't get you on the podcast at some point over these two weeks. Have not heard a sniff, or Julian haven't heard a sniff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you just talked yourself out of it there. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't heard anything, so uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to bring the quint double stat to the masses. Yep, there you go. Get him on the pod, lads. Get him on the pod. In the women's competition, Bjorn mentioned Sweden, who are absolutely killing it so far. They're top of their group with uh, two victories and what I felt was perhaps the best game of the tournament so far, which happened earlier on today, uh, just before we recorded, in fact, with Sweden against France. And Sweden, I think they were six goals down at some point in the first half, 
managed to to come back into the game. And then once they did, it was basically a back and forth all the way down to the end uh, when France had a penalty to win it. And Jessica Rida saved it against Grasadi. Um, so Sweden kind of punching above their weight at the moment. Uh, Bjorn, as you mentioned, very impressed with them. Karin Stromberg, who, uh, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't notice she was there a lot of the time. And, and for me personally, I mean, talking before this championship, uh, I always felt she was a bit of a, a liability in attack. But at this championship, really stepping up her and Yamina Roberts doing the business as the kind of two of the wise old heads in the team. And uh, the young players just stepping up big time in their Olympics and no fear in them. Yeah, I, Karen Strömberg, I really didn't know where she came from. I was like, oh, where have Sweden unearthed this gem? And then I looked into it and she's played 75 games for Sweden and is the captain. So she has really been under the radar for this Swedish team for a long time. But she's just, uh, she's just been amazing. Um her shooting she's just like a traditional shooter but she has a real good feel for a pass into the line or into the wing which is why she's actually the top assist um maker in the competition so far mm. so the sweden have been very impressive any other teams impress you so far brazil uh, bjorn also mentioned uh, a team that i yeah kind of well we mentioned in the preview podcast it was kind of a last hurrah for them and I wasn't sure what they were going to be able to produce. But, you know, a lot of these players who are in their final tournament are really giving it one hell of a last go. And Bruna De Paula, who I mentioned as one of my three players to look out for, she's top scored in two of the games for them. And, yeah, they have a, well, I think we'll be, we'll be going through to the quarterfinals at the, uh, at the very least. Three points from three games at the moment for them. And really making this Group B all very tight with the Russian Olympic Committee in there. Uh, France and, and Hungary, basically the only side who are out of the running at the moment. Uh, Norway and Netherlands I haven't really looked at yet because a bit like Denmark on the men's side, it just expected them to power through everyone. And that's exactly what they've done. Three wins out of three for the two of them. Norway winning their games on an average of 11 goals per game. Netherlands winning an average of nine goals per game. They face each other in what is basically the group final on Saturday. And uh, that whole group, Group A, I think is really interesting because uh, you could have both Japan and South Korea qualify in the end and so i have to say japan have impressed me as well because i expected maybe the men's japanese team to be the one to give a better go at qualifying but uh japanese women got a win over montenegro and have put themselves in a, a great chance of uh, of qualifying a huge win for japan really happy to see that a host nation for, that is uh, lower ranked and handball really coming through and they put themselves into a really good position to qualify I've, I've liked Japan and Korea, but again, their their pace is incredible. It, it is just lightning fast. That game between Korea and Netherlands, which finished, uh, what was the score? It finished 43-36, uh, and that was the most goals ever uh, in an Olympic game. That's, that's an that average, was just bonkers. That's an average of a goal every 45 seconds. <laughs> a goal! Never mind a shot, but a goal every 45 seconds. That's not, you're getting on beach handball territory there. That's, that's nuts. 
Um, yeah, 79 each, each goals. Each team had 70 attacks. <laughs> that is just... <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And, and maybe it's the, it's another way to look at it in the future when you look at the stats. And as you mentioned, what Neil Johnson said about game management for these teams, you know, teams like the Netherlands and Norway are not going to be overpowered by that. You know, they can run just as hard as anyone else in the world. Uh, and they've got better quality. So, yeah, fascinating there. And, um, yeah, the Dutch, uh, you, you posted a nice video with uh, Nika Groots, a blind pass there. It's hard to say much about these teams at the moment. They haven't really been tested yet. Uh, they'll test each other, Norway and Netherlands, on Saturday, and then we'll uh, we'll see how they're shaped up as we go into the quarterfinals. But I have to say, Nika Groot has been, I think, a difference maker for the Netherlands. She's filled a bit of the gap left by Estevana Pullman. Um, she, she hasn't filled the goal-scoring uh, part of Pullman's game, but she has really allowed the team to play. She's kind of a real pure playmaker at heart and especially allowed Lois Abing to excel and not have that full resp- responsibility in the attack. So I like what I see from the Netherlands so far. Before we go, and uh, we'll be back again before the around the quarterfinals time, I need to uh, give out about the commentary. <laughs> because, and I'm not, it's not just in handball, but it is in handball. Because the Olympic Broadcast Service have been <laughs> hosting it, and they've got, alongside Paul Bray, a couple of other people. One of them is a cycling commentator. Right. And he keeps calling penalties line throws, first of all. <laughs> When he's talking about particularly the women's teams, like there's such disrespect the way that he speaks about the sport. I think it's, it's terrible and just randomly says things for the sake of it and like assuming decisions like fouls, two minute suspensions. Also what the coaches are saying. Like he talks over the timeout and randomly just assumes what they're going to be saying, which I think is horrendous. It took the biscuit for me. In the final Swedish timeout against France today, where he's like, oh, they've all put resin on their hands. And that worries me sometimes. You never know what the grip of the ball is going to be like. <laughs> like, oh my God, what are you doing? <laughs> and I just feel like, you know, you watch a lot of people watching this sport for the first time. This is the world feed. And... You know, like, what are they being fed? What kind of misinformation like this they're being fed? And, you know, it's the same. If if I'm watching Balance Beam in artistic gymnastics, I want to be told what is happening, not like terrible assumptions being made about what the athletes are doing. And so, yeah, get your shit sorted, OBS. (laughs) I... I, I, yeah, I think the commentary has been, uh, it's been mixed. It's, it's good to have Paul Bray there to uh, even things out. But uh, I have also been watching a lot of the NBC uh, stream and they do have a range of commentators. Um, mm. One pair that's quite good. And then they do have one commentator who does uh, basically commentate like a, um, like he's watching Greyhounds running around a track where it's just <laughs> balls being passed right 
Good shot. Great save. What a fantastic block. Pass again. Pass again. Goal. And we're back again. It's just nonstop. <laughs> There's not too much information uh, being shared with that commentator. Yeah. You just can't fake it. But it is good having commentary on every game. Yeah. That is yeah. definitely a good benefit. If only these companies could find commentators who knew things about the sport. If only. All right. On that note. <laughs> if only. <laughs> you know where to find us. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Bjorn, who joined us live from Tokyo. Uh, thank you, Alex. We'll be back on, I guess, Wednesday. Yeah? We're around quarterfinal time. Uh, we'll have Brian Campion, hopefully, with us as well for that one. Until then, from Alex and myself, it's goodbye. Goodbye.